It's just wonderful to be here again. It's an absolute blessing, you know. I think in these kinds of situations, maybe you bless me more than I might bless you. Um, but I take this very seriously, and, and I think that we can all come together as a time of worship, which is just an incredible thing, especially when you take into account places in this world where you could not gather like this. And um, so it is, a, is a, it is always a pleasure to uh, speak and an honor. And we were talking about the dowry, which is an amazing thing, you know, um, and what an opportunity to ha- help someone get married. Now, for me, I've been married about 10 years. My wife is here, actually, with her little boy in the back because he's kind of clingy right now. So, yeah, he's kind of like a magnet. I'm like, man, I love you, but you're like a little mosquito right now, you know, like just kind of chill out. But he, he's just two and a half. He's a good little boy. But, you know, I, I didn't have to pay a dowry. I just met with my father-in-law, and I was really nervous, and I had coffee with him. And, you know, it was kind of awkward because we both know why we're there. You know, and, uh, you know, we're talking about the weather and different things like this. I'm trying, and I, I really don't like that kind of small chat. Like, you know, it's just kind of awkward. But I poured out my heart to him. This is why I want to, you know, marry your daughter. And I want, I'd like your blessing, your permission and all this. And he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he just a very straight face. And then he just says, so you want an answer? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, I'll have to think about it. And he just got up and walked out. And I was like, oh. And I went out. I just like totally felt like somebody had sucker punched me. And I went out and my wife was like, so what did he say? Uh, really nothing. And she's like, what? And then he was just joking. You know, he loves me. And he, the, the next day he was laughing about it. So uh, I didn't, maybe, you know, maybe the dowry would have been a little easier. You know, here's $1,000. Thank you. You know, um, you know, so, you know, he's, he's great. But so I, I want to just talk about two quick little things. Um, before we start into the message. One, it's, it's kind of a, a prayer request. I'm gonna, and then we'll have a time to pray, and uh, that will be part of the prayer, of course. But right now, actually it's probably over now, but today, um, in Paris, 70 nations gathered together for a conference. And maybe some of you have heard about this. Um, they've gathered together for a, a global issue, to discuss a global issue. And no, it is not poverty. No, it is not the ethnic cleansing of Christians in the Middle East, or the hundreds of thousands that have been killed in the Syrian civil war, and ISIS, and uh, global terrorism, or sex trafficking, and all of these other issues. The one issue that they've all gathered to discuss is to condemn the one democracy in the Middle East, Israel, which is, of course, an imperfect, it's not a perfect country, but to condemn the one democracy in the Middle East. And it's an amazing thing, because 70 nations, when we look in the Bible... Seventy is a symbolic number in the Bible, and it represents the world. And it also describes that 70 nations, the world, is going to come up against Israel. And so we want to, I just, we want to declare this and pray for this. This is going to have a ripple effect, and um, it's to isolate Israel. It really isn't a conference against Israel, it's against God. When you really look at all the, the parameters of what is being discussed and what has followed, it's really against God. And so uh, let's just open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise your name, Lord God. We praise you for who you are. You are the God of the universe. You are also the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You sent your son to this world, the Lion of Judah, to live a sinless life, yet to be made like sin, to suffer upon a cross, to shed his blood, to be put in a tomb, but not to stay there, Lord. You broke the chains of death. You rose from the grave. You sit at the right hand of the Father. That same resurrection, that same life you offer to us who know you, Lord. Freely, you extend your hand. 
And you bless us with that incredible privilege. Even though we don't deserve it. Even though we deserve death. You've reached out because you love us. And your love is unfailing. And we have assurance in that love. But Lord, the, before then, before we see you face to face, this world seems to be spiraling out of control at times. We see suffering all over the globe. We see your name defamed in all corners and in every way, Father God. But we do know that you've written the, the entire story, that you will not be derailed, Lord, that your promises, your covenants, your who you are will remain fully, 100%. You are righteous and merciful. And so we pray, Lord, against the whims, the wickedness of man in all of its sense, Lord, which is anti-God. We pray, Lord, for the church globally, that the church would wake up where it needs to wake up, that the church would understand what discipleship is, what love is, and even, Lord, if they might suffer for your name, may you give them courage and strength. May we not take that for granted, Lord God. Be with Israel, be with the church, Lord. You are the God of the nations as well. Convict the nations. Amen. So as Chris said, I'm with Bridges for Peace. I'm the Deputy National Director, and I'll just really say a couple words about Bridges for Peace. We are a reconciliation ministry, a ministry of compassion to the Jewish people on behalf of Christians. So from the church to the synagogue, from Christians to Jews. And we reach out in reconciliation because many Jewish people have been hurt by Christians. Many Jewish people have maybe stereotypes or a skewed vision of what a Christian is because they've always seen a negative uh, been negatively impacted by people that claim to be Christians. So there's a lot of hurt and suspicion in the Jewish community globally, and even in our own country. There's different things like that. So as an organization, Bridges for Peace, we reach out with genuine Christ-like love, uh, with trust, building relationships, showing that love as Christians, and it's amazing. Our international office is based in Israel. The national Canadian office is right here in Winnipeg. We're in eight nations around the world. And in Israel, some of what we do is we feed the needy, about 22,000 people every month. That's about 60 tons of food that's delivered. We work in schools, about 10 schools, feeding 400 children. We help victims of terror and war. We've helped over 58,000 Jewish people immigrate to Israel. Many of them I've met have, have immigrated because of anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jews. And some of those people that have immigrated, immigrated because Christians hated them in some of these nations where they've come from. And so for, it's an amazing thing for me and for people connected with bridges and even for any Christian that has a burden and wants to show the love of Christ. It's an amazing thing when a Jewish person meets that person. Because for many Jewish people I've met, I might be the very first Christian they've ever met in my life, in their life. And that is, that's exciting because there's no baggage. You know, they've heard things, but they've never seen it or they've never been impacted by it. But for many Jewish people... I may be the very first positive Christian experience that they've ever had, or the very po first, the positive Christian that they've ever met. And that, it's a mind-boggling thing, because, I mean, it just seems like an oxymoron. It's like, you know, Jesus died for all. Jesus was a Jew. And, and all these kinds of things with uh, what we read in the Scripture. But it is a growing problem. It is something that hasn't gone away with the, the church's resistance, hostility, aspects of the church, not every church, of course. And there's... Uh, Many, many, many millions of Christians that are uh, showing love. But it's still something that isn't going away. And, uh, but God is shaking. 
the, the, the synagogue. He's shaking the Jewish people. And you even hear of things from the, the prime minister of Israel will say, our best friends in the world, our closest friends are evangelical Christians. So God is doing something incredible. And he's also shaking the church. And that's another thing that we do as an organization is we educate, we, we uh, do conferences and seminars. We take people to Israel. We offer study tours. We offer volunteer um, opportunities for people to live in Israel and experience what that is like. And so it really is a remarkable organization I'm proud to be a part of. And uh, there's literature, as Pastor Chris said, in the back there that you can check out. And um, if you want to connect with us through prayer, financial support, if you want to go and live in Israel, if you want to experience Israel for the first time, you can connect with us. And so I'd be happy to uh, talk to you about that as well. But let's, uh, let's jump into what we're going to be talking about today. Last week, we, uh, I, I spoke about Mark 5, right? The woman... Uh, with the issue of blood. It's been 12 years, she has no healing, and then she just throws herself at Jesus and grabs his kanaf, his wings, the zitzit, the tassel on the end of his, of his cloak, and she's remarkably healed. She's immediately healed, and Jesus professes that your faith has made you well. And that's an incredible thing that we see, because this is a, a literal fulfillment in, a, in its literal context of the prophecies of Malachi. When it says, those who fear your name, the son of righteousness will rise up with healing in his wings, with healing in his kanaf. And she literally grabbed his kanaf and is miraculously healed. And so it's like kind of opening that door and, and exploring beyond what we just see in the text. Using the text, but understanding what's really happening here. So today we're going to talk about another encounter that Jesus has. And I've entitled this the question of the Sadducees, or from the Sadducees. Matthew 22 23 to 33. I'm going to read this. And it's kind of this unique, kind of bizarre encounter that Jesus has. It says, The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Uh, last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So what's happening here? And before we, we dive into it, let's, uh, let's kind of come to an understanding of who these people are. Because right before this, we also are introduced to the... Again, to the Pharisees. So in this encounter, these are Sadducees, okay? And there's a big difference. Who are the Sadducees? In Hebrew, the word Sadducee, it comes from sedukim, a righteous one. And that word sadik, righteous, has many connotations in the scriptures. We, we, even people are identified as righteous or a sadik, like John the Baptist, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary. In fact, John the Apostle he even calls uh, Jesus the ultimate uh, tzaddik, the ultimate righteous one in 1 John. And so who were these people? They're righteous ones. What does it mean to be a righteous one? What it means to be a righteous one 
in a, in a Hebraic first century context is one who follows the commandments of Scripture, not legalistically, but because it's the, a matter of the heart. They love God. God has told in his word, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live. So I want to live it. I want to do what God wants me to do. It's a matter of the heart. And I'm going to do this. I will do what's right just because it's right. Whatever the consequences. I mean, John the Baptist, God is, he lost his head because he was a righteous one. Whatever the consequences, I will do what is right. So that's what it means to be a righteous one. But with the Sadducees, it's kind of interesting because it's, it's almost like a, Ironic that they're called righteous ones because they have some serious issues among the Sadducees. First of all, the Sadducees were an aristocratic Jewish elite. They were priestly descent. They were in charge of the temple sanctuary and making sure everything functioned um, according to how it should function. They were highly religious people. They were concerned with issues of ritual purity and temple service. Now, the interesting thing about them is they only believed they only believed and accepted the inspiration of Scripture, the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. To them, to a Sadducee, that's authoritative, that's inspired by God. The rest, they rejected. The rest, the, all the prophets, the writings, they said, that is not inspirational. Of course, it, you know, it has merit, it, it, there's some good uh, value to it, but it's not God-breathed. It's not part of God's Word. So that was, that's a big no-no, uh, or that's a big thing that separates them as a group. They only accepted the first five books. The Sadducees were elite, so the upper echelon of Sadducees were handpicked by the Romans. That also says another thing about these people and the position they held. And then, of course, by the text and other texts, and knowing who these people were, we know that they denied the resurrection. There is no resurrection of the dead, and they denied angels. In contrast... Um, not to get these two confused, they're very different. In contrast, the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? We encounter the Pharisees many times. And I think often, sometimes, we're kind of hard on them. Too hard, I would say. If you Google, you know, Pharisee in the uh, dictionary.com or look it up, often it'll, one of its first descriptions will be uh, somebody who's Pharisaical or a hypocrite or somebody who's kind of double two-faced or legalistic. Um, of course, there were Pharisees exactly like that. There are many Christians and Christian leaders exactly like that. Um, but, but I don't believe that that's a, a very good painting of who they were as a group. Okay, so you obviously have this inside their group. Of course, there's hypocrites in every group, in every area of society. It's kind of a human condition or a, a leaning, you know, be, we get arrogant and puffed up and we can easily become like that. But the Pharisees, that word it was prashim in Hebrew, and it was separatists, really what it meant. They kind of of the world, but not of the world. They're in the world, but not of the world. They want to separate themselves and stand apart as, as, a, as a group. And even under the Pharisee umbrella, there was many different schools of thought. But, but all Pharisees would agree on key tenets of Scripture, key theological tenets of Scripture. All, all Pharisees would agree on those things, but then there would be some disagreements in other areas. Um, all Pharisees were scribes. But not all scribes were Pharisees. That's a very key thing. A scribe writes the Bible, basically. He's a recorder, someone who pens the scripture. And today there are still Jewish scribes that write scripture. And it's an amazing thing to witness that. Um, the Torah, the first five books, will take a scribe one solid year. And a Torah scroll can go for $50,000 to $150,000, one scroll. Not bad. But what that means is that these are Bible writers. They'd have vast amounts of the scripture memorized. 
They are writing the scripture. When they're not teaching and doing other things, they're writing the Bible. That's what these people are. They're concerned with prayer, fasting, and repentance. They were traveling missionaries. They went all over the known world. That's where we get synagogues all over the world. When Paul travels, he goes to synagogues, and he even meets Gentiles, who he calls God-fears, Gentiles interested in the God of the Bible. He meets these people. Well, the Pharisees were traveling missionaries, and they were concerned with the spiritual state of other people as well as the Jewish people. They numbered between 6,000 and 8,000 in number. They believed in the full inspiration of Scripture, from, uh, including the, for the first five books, the prophets, the, the writings. They also created traditions and certain laws to protect the commandments. And in some ways, they did be, they, many became legalistic because of those uh, traditions and laws. But in and of themselves, they weren't bad. They were just concerned with preserving the Scripture. We do, we do a lot of that too sometimes. We set our own fences or things to make sure we don't step too far in areas. Most of them would have also had much of Scripture memorized. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in angels. They opposed the Roman rule in the land. And if any one of us could be taken, put in a little time machine and travel back 2,000 years, who would you have the most in common with? If you could speak the language biblically and theologically about everything from God as creator to Messiah to um, all kinds of issues theologically, you'd have the most in common with the Pharisees, with Pharisees. So that should kind of change your perception. I mean, we know when we're reading the Gospels, we know when people are trying to trap Jesus and have the wrong intent. Jesus sees the heart, you know, and there's, there's, it's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. There are times where we clearly see hip, hypocritical nature or characteristics of why people come to Jesus. But many times we also see good Pharisees asking good, solid questions. You know, many think, believe that Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea are, are Pharisees. Paul, Saul was a Pharisee. And the fact that many of them came to Jesus also shows that they had a lot in common um, theologically. Now, this is one of my favorite encounters in, in Scripture between the Sadducees and the Pharisees in Acts 23. And I'm going to quickly read that. In Acts 23, 6 to 9, we read. So, so Paul's been brought before a council and he's kind of been abused, and there's obviously in this council there'll be people that loathe him, um, maybe people that are kind of on the fence, people that like him or support him. And he calls out, he's very clever. He identifies who his audience is, and he appeals to his audience, and he actually causes division. Listen to this. Then Paul said, um, uh, I do not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, because they're accusing him of things, you shall not speak of a ruler because they of an evil ruler of your people because they, they, they think basically that he in, knowingly has offended the high priest. But then it says in verse 6, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So Paul, in this clever form, 
realizes his audience, and he makes a declaration about the resurrection, which naturally instantly causes this uproar. And everybody starts arguing. And it's, it's a very classic uh, encounter that Paul uses to drive home the truth and to really disrupt um, these people that are, are sitting in judgment of him. And so we see a little bit about the relationship there. Um, in Matthew 22, 23 to 33, what, I, what I, we read, this encounter deals with the issue of the re- resurrection of the dead. And these are Sadducees that have just come to Jesus, and we know even before that, some Pharisees had just come to him. So this is an interesting thing. They approach Jesus with this uh, theological question, and that's very normative to the first century. Different rabbis, different leaders, different disciples would always pose questions. Whether ill-intent or not, they would always pose questions and argue. You know, there, there's a joke, you have one, two Jews, you have four opinions, and that's the same thing. That was a very Jewish custom, very Jewish. And so we see that these Sadducees approach him and they, and they, uh, with this question. Now, Jesus' response, or actually I'll start with this. The Sadducees, what, what's coming out of this question? Because it's kind of bizarre, especially the second half of it. But what they are asking is a question found in the, in the Torah, in the, actually in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5, sorry, 25, 5 to 10. And it really goes, if a man dies childless, his brother must marry his widow and have children to preserve the family line. This is a commandment to protect women in the ancient Near East. Because for a woman to be married, that's like a lifeline. And if the husband dies, if she's childless, her very life could be in danger. So God is giving this commandment to the Israelite community to remember the women, remember the the widows, care for them. And it's part of the family's responsibility to take care of them and preserve them. And when you see that Deuteronomy 5 to 10, uh, 25, 5 to 10, if a, if a man who, that's his responsibility, doesn't want it, like the elders come before him and implore him, if he still rejects him, that, the woman can remove his sandal and like spit in his face. Like this is a, a horrible, like, uh, you know, dropping the ball. This is, not, this is not a godly action to say, oh, well, I'm not going to look after you. It's a, that man's responsibility to care for that widow. And so this is protecting the women of, these, of this time. So the Sadducees come forward using this. That's what they're talking about, Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. That's the context of what they're using. But they put this distinctive kind of hypothetical twist to their question. Seven brothers who at their own time had this certain woman for their wife until each one died. And this is this bizarre case which leads to an even more bizarre question after the widow dies herself. Now in the resurrection... Of the seven, whose wife will she be? Whose wife will she be? I mean, this is a very strange question for the Sadducees to ask. Why? For a number of reasons, but the main one, they don't even believe in the resurrection. They don't even believe in the resurrection. So, you know, me think that this is a trap. You know, like, it doesn't take much, like, when you, when you understand who the Sadducees are, it does not take much to, like, understand, ah, uh, yeah, this is a trap. This is totally a trap. So, whose wife will she be? Yeshua, Jesus, cannot have the wool pulled over his eyes. He's the King Messiah. But he notes in his answer a couple of things. That these people have gone astray. And they're ignorant of a fact. Actually, two facts. Two areas. They're first, they're ignorant of the entire scripture. Okay, and at this time, there is no New Testament. It's the Old Testament. It's the Tanakh. They're ignorant of the word of God. The second, they're ignorant of the power of God. 
Now, the source of their ignorance is theological confusion over the scriptures, and it is not unlike many people today. I was actually shocked. Uh, a while ago, I was reading in Christianity Today recent polls about biblical illiteracy, and I found that in the article that nearly 40% of the people polled, these are all churchgoers, these aren't just dragging someone off the street, these are all people professed to be regular church attenders, uh, American and British Christians, they believed that Harry Potter, the Hunger Games, and Superman were inspired by or part of the Bible. That you would find, like, you, in the Gospels, Clark Kent, you know, tearing his, like, shirt off and flying away. Like, to that ridiculousness, but that biblical illiteracy. People don't know their scriptures. Now, so Jesus points this out. Theological confusion. Why? I mean, these weren't, like, you know, like, people that had never read the Bible before. The Sadducees were priests. And they were, in a, no doubt, highly educated men. Highly educated. Yet their own theology had created a blind spot in regard to the full re uh, revelation of God's truth. How often do we have blind spots? Every single one of us at some time in our faith has had a blind spot. Some people never recover, ever, from their blind spot. And it's like it hamstrings them. And, and they can't get past that. So this is this blind spot that Jesus points out. Now, Jesus could have used many key passages in Scripture to, when it, with, about the doctrine of resurrection, which is clearly taught in the Scripture. I'll read one, Daniel 12, 1 to 2. And it's significant of why he, he doesn't use anything outside of the first five books. Why? Because they don't even believe in it. They don't even believe it has authority. But, here, it, but it's clearly taught. Daniel 12... 1 to 2, it states this. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, come to ever, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That the, the, those who have died will wake up. Isaiah 26, 19, Psalm 16, 10 to 11. There are verses in scripture that profess the resurrection of the dead. Now, these Sadducees don't even believe in it. And it is, it's interesting to, to kind of connect with and reaffirm and, and see that later, uh, as a faith, Judaism has applied this uh, belief as a, the resurrection of the dead in their actual 13 principles of the Jewish faith which says, I believe with perfect faith that there will be the resurrection of the dead when the creator blessed be his name and may his mention be exalted forever wishes this. So even today, as part of Jewish faith, Orthodox Jewish faith, the resurrection of the dead is believed as a real thing because it's in the scripture. I mean, we can't, we can't miss that. But the Sadducees missed it. The Sadducees missed it because they didn't believe that the rest of scripture was authoritative. But this is the kicker. God, Jesus is about to do something amazing because he's about to use their own scripture that they believe in to prove the resurrection. So then they don't have any excuse. So there's an inherent problem with the Sadducees. First, they did not give authority to some of the vital portions of the Hebrew scriptures. And second, they minimized the power of God to accomplish the resurrection. How often do we minimize the power of God with anything, with another matter? I mean, we may say, I believe in the resurrection, 
But how often do we minimize the power of God with all kinds of things in our life? Doubting, not having faith. Sometimes Christians, they don't even think about God. It's like, you know, you go through a whole thing in your life that's shaking you up. And then however it turns out, then you realize, oh my, I never even gave this to God. I didn't even open up my Bible. I didn't even pray. They minimize the power of God. And Jesus rebukes them. The power of God trumps any other challenge in our life. Any challenge. It's a great thought, but it's true. And we got to live it. Anything you are experiencing and have gone through, God's power trumps that. I mean, the ultimate thing God's power trumps is the curse of sin. I mean, there's nothing bigger than that. Everything else is like whatever. You know, if, if, you don't, if God's power doesn't trump that, you could have a great, great, great life. But if that doesn't get trumped, oh my. Like, when you die, who is God? If God's power is so limited, it's not. God exists outside of space and time. His, his power is limitless. Limitless. So, Jesus adds these corrections and a challenge. First of all, he says, neither man nor woman will marry in the world to come. We will be in a whole new dimension with glorified bodies through the resurrection. I mean, it's like, this is the ultimate thing. We were not created to die. That was like this kind of foreign contaminant. You know, Adam and Eve were created to be in the garden in relationship with bodies that weren't supposed to die. And then the, this curse of sin came in and corrupted it. And death came into the world. So does God have a plan? Absolutely. The lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. It's like this incredible bridge. God cannot be in the presence of sin. The wages of that sin is death. It must be paid. But God provides this incredible thing. His own son is going to pay the price. And that through that, that like swings open the gate so we can walk over the bridge right into the presence of, of God. So he says, relationships will be changed. And the earthly marriage covenant will not be needed. So there's going to be no giving or taking of marriage. This is where glorified bodies, relationships will be changed. That's the thing. But the second thing is this. The central issue is not marriage. The central issue is the resurrection of the dead. It may seem like a small thing to you, but this is massive. Massive. And I'll show this. First, Jesus challenges them with a text they surely believe in and respect. He, what he cites is from the first five books. This is what these guys believe has the authority and inspiration. So Jesus is like playing their game, okay? You don't believe in the full inspiration of all scripture, but I'm going to prove to you the resurrection through scripture you believe in. And he does this classic Jewish method. Uh, Jesus poses them a question back to them. You know, it's like, whoop, redirect. And he says, haven't you realized what God said to you, you silly Sadducees? Haven't you realized it? And he quotes from Exodus 3.6. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This quote straight out of the passages that these people would say has authority. And it's straight out of the passage of God's revelation to Moses at the burning bush. I mean, Moses is the ultimate. The ultimate example. He's a friend of God. He saw God face to face. And this is what Jesus uses. Right out of the burning bush, what God declares, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But why this quote? Why this quote? When you examine the text, 
Examine the present tense of the verb. It highlights the very fact of the resurrection. God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He speaks about them as if they're still alive. And this is Moses. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have long been gone. But God speaks to Moses as if they're still alive with him. Right there. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. And the crowds are floored. Because Jesus is one who speaks with his own authority. He doesn't quote other rabbis, which is what everybody did. That was just what Jewish teachers did. They would quote other people and talk about scripture. Jesus is the word. He doesn't quote anybody else. He doesn't need to. He speaks with his own authority and people are just blown away. It's incredible. The reactions. Astonished. Have you ever been astonished? I have. I'm ast I was going to say, I'm astonished my wife accepted my proposal. No. But I didn't have to pay a thousand bucks. But maybe I should have. Anyway, no, the, the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching. She's out of the room, so none of you say that to, to Deanna. <laughs> um, I'm going to show two examples. This is like, do we really catch the, the crux of the matter? This is our hope, the resurrection. This is like the backbone. This is the fulfillment. This is like Jesus made all these promises and said all of these things, if he had stayed in the tomb, we'd have a serious issue. But he didn't. Okay, John eleven twenty five. John eleven twenty five. Great. So he's talking to Martha, and he says, Jesus said to her, you might know this, you should know this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Isn't that incredible? Though he may die, you're going to live. It's like those two kind of seem complete at odds. But through what Jesus does, the resurrection and the life, he takes what was dead and raises it and brings life into it. And he doesn't just like raise it as like a skeleton out of the ground that's been sitting in the ground. It's glorified. Glorified. Not only is the resurrection of the dead a, a complete amazing miracle, but we're glorified. You know, that's a good thing. Otherwise, we'd see all kinds of skeletons and half, you know, all that kind of stuff. We're glorified to be in his presence. Sin cannot be in the presence of God. Something incredible has happened here. We are raised from the dead, the resurrection, and we, sit, and we can look right at the Father. We can look at Jesus because of what we've been covered. And we see through the resurrection, his disciples recognized who he was. It's not like he was resurrected with some other you know, like, like facial, like someone else's, like, look. Like he, he, he looked like himself. They knew who he was. He wasn't some invisible ghost. He said, touch me. See the holes in my hands. He ate with them. This is an incredible thing. He conquered death. He did what no human in history could ever do. Because he had to be sinless to be that perfect sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20. This is the kicker. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. 
Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become, this is the best part, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What Christ did has become the first fruits for those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits to us. If Christ is not risen, this, what we're doing, is a complete waste of time. It's futile, Paul says. You're still in your sins. And those who have died, who, who thought they knew Christ, boy, they got ripped off because they're going to all perish. But if Christ is risen, that's the first fruits because he has risen indeed. That is our hope. That's just like, it accomplishes absolutely everything. That's the key. To not just live a good life and believe in a God or a God, but the fact that that God, God, is real. And not only that, the fact that he took sin and really gave it one and shattered the, the chains, well, that just changes everything. Now, this isn't just, I believe in God. I believe in a God of life, a living God. A God who says to me, just as I live and raise my son from the dead, so will I do to you through him, if you believe in him. This is everlasting, eternal life. This is an amazing, amazing thing. Truth, when we latch on to that, that is assurance. That is assurance. That is hope. That is salvation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise your name, Lord. We magnify you. You are the Prince of Peace, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. With a plan, Lord God, you sent your Son, who was raised from the dead, conquered death. And your word tells us that is our hope, that you are our high priest, that we can come boldly before the throne, that our sins will be washed clean, that we will be raised from the dead ourselves, that we will be glorified made new, that we will be with you. Oh God, we thank you for that truth, Lord. Although we didn't deserve it, our punishment was death in our rebellion. But you bridged that gap. You took us by the hand because you were a God of plan and promise and covenant and faithful slow to anger, abounding in mercy, great mercy, strength and righteousness. You are real. You invade history. History is your story. You are a part of that. We are a part of that. And you call out to us. You hold your wings out to us. May we grab a hold of your wings. May we trust in you that we serve a living God you are not the God of the dead, but of the living. And may we, Lord God, be astonished at that. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Be blessed and go with the Lord.